Hello, I'm Ben Williams, Administrator of Science at the Virginia Museum of Natural History. Welcome to the VMNH Cast. Thank you, Ben, for having me again, and thank you for having me in a slightly different capacity today. Yes, yes, very exciting. So uh, a few weeks ago, we did a podcast episode about the Smith River Survey, and not too long after that, my cousin-in-law, Philip, sent me a message, and he said he listened to the episode and he really enjoyed it, but he had to confess uh, he was slightly disappointed that the episode was not about fishing, uh, but instead... um, surveying archaeological sites along the Smith River. But it occurred to me that you are a, a skilled angler and uh, have a lot of experience fishing the Smith River and that uh, and rivers and streams in this area and that it uh, might be good to talk about that a little bit and talk about some of the trout and some of the uh, ecological issues facing our local streams and rivers. And so uh, yesterday we did a, a sort of... Uh, Ecological Survey, joined by Vashon Gray, an intern we have here at the museum. And uh, using a scientific device known as a fly rod, we we did some uh, localized sampling of some spots along this stream. So I was wondering, uh, first off, if you could speak a little bit about, um, you know, what uh, the importance of doing that, and especially as it pertains to uh, Vashon's internship here. Certainly. So, you know, many of us have had a ton of experience in uh, doing some type of conservation activity surrounding freshwater streams. Vashon and others have gone through and tested water quality. Uh, They've looked at issues for runoff where, you know, sources of silt and other, you know, things that are coming down hillsides and off roads are flowing into streams and causing problems. But, you know, one thing that we rarely get to see is why are we doing these activities? What are we protecting, sort of, to what end? And one thing that we got to do yesterday is not only see these freshwater streams that are very vulnerable, but understand the, the very sensitive habitats contained within these freshwater streams. And so, yeah, you know, it might sound silly to some people, but actually going through and seeing, you know, native brook trout in these streams, seeing wild rainbow trout in these streams, not only gives you a sense of, you know, where these species are, but it kind of gives you an understanding of the very sort of niche habitats that they occupy and, you know, what could go wrong with a single landslide coming down, you know, that hill that we were next to, or if, you know, Somebody happens to salt the road uh, during the winter that's right next to that stream. You know, I'll say to kind of set the scene a bit that you know, this uh, stream we went to is uh, in Floyd County, uh, very close to a road, fairly isolated. 
the thing that immediately struck me upon seeing it is it it did not look like it could support trout to me. You know, I think of you know, rivers like the Smith River, you know, somewhat larger rivers, but this looked almost like a creek just running through the woods, and yet uh, it had a pretty pretty healthy populations in there. So I, I, that was kind of surprising to me that you know these niche environments that they can live. Absolutely, and that, that's what you'll find for our, you know, one native species of trout here, um, which is the southern Appalachian rook trout for this region, is that they are primarily occupying these small headwater streams, most of them spring-fed, um, and no larger, I should say no wider than maybe, what, two, three yards at most? Yeah, at most. Yeah, uh, so I mean, these are these are very small waters, things that we call pocket waters, you know, they have larger and slightly deeper pools, but otherwise, I mean, six inches deep in certain areas. So, I mean, they're, you would not expect that to host, you know, large populations of trout, but they do. Yeah, we have uh, three species of trout in Virginia that um, you can uh, go fishing for. I, I, was, I thought it might be interesting to go through each one, starting logically with the brook trout, which I understand, so that's our only uh, native trout species in Virginia. Absolutely. So uh, brook trout are only, I'd like to distinguish, you know, in terminology here, you know, na- when people refer to native trout, they're, um, they're referring to actual species that are native to this area. When people refer to wild trout, they're typically referring to, you know, what some people even call holdover trout. So at one point they were stocked, you know, into a stream, into a river. They were brought in, but they have since reproduced and so they, you know, the, the, the trout that you are catching or you're seeing or inhabiting those rivers and streams are not native, but they're reproducing and technically wild. Um, now, the three species that we have in this area um, are uh, the rainbow trout, which is a stocked species. Uh, you, you do get wild rainbow trout that are reproducing, but were originally stocked. You get brown trout. Uh, in this area, which also stocked and in some places wild um, from reproducing. And then finally, of course, you have our native brook trout, which are truly native and in some places stocked, um, but in a very sensitive way. And you were telling me yesterday about sort of the, uh, the ancient history of the brook trout, and I thought this was fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about how they got into Uh, our local streams and rivers. Uh, Certainly. So, you know, brook trout have a fascinating natural history, uh, not just in this area in particular, but everywhere east of the Mississippi where they are found native. Um, So I'll just use, you know, this area as an example, is most of them arrived in this region during the Pleistocene. So the, the period that's, you know, from approximately 1.8 million years ago to about 11,000 years ago, um, so many of people, many people who are familiar with you know natural history in, in North America, this area, will know that that's the period of you know glaciation for this area. We have peak kind of um, glacial maximums coming down in you know glaciers actually reaching to Pennsylvania, all the way south to Pennsylvania, um, you know, 22,000 years ago. It was probably around that time, I think, that most people who study brook trout populations believe that probably around 22,000 years ago, you have these small kind of refuges of um, very cold waters 
that are extending from the coast all the way into the mountain regions where we are. And that allowed brook trout to uh, migrate uh, in those cold waters. They're anadromous fish, so migrate even into salt water and up these streams, rivers and streams, all the way into these very small headwater streams. Now, during that time period, brook trout swam freely in the lower rivers, the upper streams, but when the glaciers retreated, you get the warming of waters along the coast and slowly up into the mountains to finally you get these populations of brook trout that get trapped in these areas. So they're no longer moving freely, you know, from the mountains down to the coast or anywhere in between, but there's all of a sudden confined to areas with the coldest waters. So waters with a temperature range that will still support them. Um, I'll say the upper limit of a brook trout is about 70, 72 degrees Fahrenheit. Any warmer than that, um, you, you do get die off of, of those species. So you can kind of think of, you know, our waters in where we are, the Smith River, in some sections of it, particularly the lower Smith, during the peak of summer, those temperature, water temperatures really do get up there. I mean, I've seen them this year where they do get up to 72, 73 degrees. Um, so those, of course, can't support brook trout. But these small streams confined to the headwaters, usually they're, they're as you saw yesterday, they're heavily shaded uh, year-round. Uh, they're usually sourced from a very cool spring. So the waters are, are oxygenated. They're, they're pure, clean and most importantly, cold. Um, so that's typically the, the last refuges of, of where brook trout are typically found native. Yeah, I know you were saying yesterday, um, and it, it's one of those things that's obvious after you, you hear it, but that um, you're saying about the uh, easements, how they, mm -hmm. they can't cut trees along these streams because just the, the lack of the shade could heat the stream up too much for those brook trout to survive. Absolutely. So these, these last sort of um, refuge areas were, were brook trout, our native and our wild trout streams in, you know, here in Virginia, but you can you know, take this from Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and other places. The, you know, one of the activity, human activities um, that is most likely to destroy that habitat is deforestation or cutting down even just the immediate vegetation along the banks of these streams. Uh, it's a very common practice um, on farmland, areas where even you have recreational fishing and, you know, as we all experienced yesterday, our line was constantly caught in the tree above us or, you know, the bush right beside us. People will, without knowing what they're doing, you know, cut down all those trees and, you know, that vegetation. But that's what's keeping these waters cold. That's what's keeping a lot of the silt held back and from running into those streams. So, you know, the easements here in Virginia that allow some of these streams to, to thrive um, are typically organized and structured around limitations on your, your ability to just cut trees on that property, your ability to remove vegetation from the banks of that, those streams. Um, so that's the motivation for, at least at the state level, for management of those habitats. As we mentioned, the um, the stream yesterday, very close to the road, mm -hmm. you know, what are the dangers from, admittedly this isn't a, a super heavily traveled road, mm -hmm. but 
Um, I assume they salt it in the winter. You know, what's the danger of that as far as these streams go? Absolutely. So, you know, you know, so one issue we've covered, of course, is temperature, but the other one is the acidity of the water. Um, if you, if the acidity of that water, uh, you know, gets too high, you're going to get, it's going to threaten and likely kill both the trout in there and their eggs. Um, or you can say the trout in there or their eggs, both of which would have devastating impacts for, you know, the next succession or the next generation of trout to occupy that stream. So what is likely to cause that? So, you know, every year in, in Virginia, we, get, we don't get a ton of snow, but we get a lot of snow and we actually get a lot of ice. And so our management strategy in many places is to salt the roads. Um, now, everyone, I think, knows what salt does to the, uh, the acidity, you know, of a water source. So imagine if you have a, a road that is within, what would you say, within 10 feet, within 5 feet, maybe in some areas of that stream? Absolutely. Imagine if, you know, a truck were to come by and salt that road. So not necessarily the, the Department of Transportation, but I see private individuals come along who might live on that road actually salt those roads as well, you know, for their convenience and access to their property. If that happens, that salt has to go somewhere. When those ice, when that ice starts to melt, that runoff is probably going direct, actually certainly going directly into that stream. Now, if you have salt water, you know, coming directly into that stream, it's going to, you know, it's going to elevate the acidity. It's probably going to significantly impact the populations to the extent where you might not get a total kill off, but you're you're reducing the population significantly by that activity. And so this is one of those things where you kind of have to understand what what are, why people are doing these types of things. We kind of know why. You know, they need access to their property. It's hard to um, it's hard to argue with that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also if I mean this is kind of part of the role of the museum as I see it is our outreach activities is communicating these types of things it's like hey if you know even though you need access we might need to find another solution other than salt which are out there I mean there's there's solutions other than you know regular salt to actually um, mitigate the issues of ice and access um, so that's that's one big one the other one is you know I've seen this so you know out in those country roads where we are you get you know, people who are off-roading, you get people um, who are kind of tearing up the, the sides of the roads, uh, you know, through grading and um, kind of just whipping through those areas. All of that exposed dirt also now has to go somewhere. Almost certainly, it's going to run off directly into that stream. Um, now, one of the things we talked about as we were looking at these pools and, and you know, as we were wading through these pools is that uh, there's certain times a year where you do not do that. And that's because of the annual spawning of brook trout. Now, it happens, you know, throughout the East Coast, anywhere from September into November. In Virginia, you typically see it in October from November if you get a lot of runoff that's bringing silt into the stream during the spawn when the eggs are in those gravel beds and those little pools we were we were seeing even a quarter inch of silt is enough to kill off a hundred percent of those eggs 100 percent mortality <laughs> so these are the things to consider as if you are traveling near uh, these small wild trout streams if you live near these small wild trout streams or 
maybe you're a local government, you know, employee or official who manages roads or, you know, forest land or anything near a trout stream. These are all the things that you have to consider. It's kind of sobering because, I mean, it certainly sounds like, you know, if you had uh, one determined individual who had a road next to a, a trout stream, they could potentially kill off the entire thing themselves without even realizing. Without even realizing, I'd say that that's fairly common is, you know, that's probably the biggest threat to these wild trout streams is some type of human activity on a property adjacent to the stream. One question I had for you, can you talk a little bit about um, your experience with fishing? You know, how long have you been fishing in general and trout fishing specifically? Yeah, so I've, I've been, um, let me first say I'm a catch and release only yeah. uh, angler. I need to preface that. Is, you know, <laughs> anything that I, I catch, I use a barbless hook and immediately put it back and try not to handle the fish as we saw yesterday. We can talk about that a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, but I'd say since, you know, not that long, so, you know, fly fishing like we were doing yesterday since about 2017. Um, And I found that it's given me an opportunity to not only, you know, enjoy a hobby like that, but also really get to understand the science of trout, the ecological or habitats, you know, issues that, that trout face, the management of, you know, trout streams and habitats at the state level, but also, um, some really kind of niche and esoteric knowledge that one needs to know and understand about trout in order to do, you know, something like fly fishing. You have to know, you know, the the entomology of a stream and what trout are feeding on and at what certain times of year, down to the, you know, size and color of the species of insect. Mm-hmm. You have to know trout behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have to kind of read that literature and understand, you know, what do trout do during certain times of day, during sight, certain times of year and in response to certain type of stream conditions, for example. So yeah, so for a couple of years, but you know, it's, it's been a really eye-opening activity for me because I'm an archeologist, you know, this is, you know, we don't study trout as in archeology span unless we're excavating, you know, evidence for trout. But this has allowed me to kind of engage with some of my other colleagues here at the museum uh, who, who do study, you know, biology, who do study uh, trout in some cases. Yeah, and I know, um, oh gosh, I can't remember which festival it was. Well, it was uh, our bug day we mm-hmm. had a while back where you were actually doing a demonstration on fly tying. Right. Uh, because that, you know, can you talk a little bit about how the flies and entomology combine? Absolutely. So this is kind of one of the, people get really passionate about <laughs> this in terms of really understanding the entomology as it relates to trout diet mm-hmm. uh, and then being able to sort of mimic that down to the, you know, the orientation of the wings on a certain species of mayfly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the, the entomology of, of um, you know, the trout diet is, it's pretty diverse, um, and it's in many cases unique to a region. Some people would argue, you know, down to the stream, you mm-hmm. know, it's very unique. Um, but what people try to do is they... They go out kind of like you saw, you know, me and Vashon doing with flipping over rocks mm-hmm. in that small stream yesterday and looking and seeing what type of, um, you know, macro inverts are underneath those rocks in terms of what are those trout eating that we were seeing yesterday. And so that's the type of activity that someone will start out doing in order to understand trout diet 
and stream entomology. They'll then, in some cases, they'll collect specimens, you know, put them in the little glass jars. In some cases, they'll take photographs, but they'll get a, you know, a pretty good understanding of the seasonal changes in the entomology of a stream. They'll then go to um, a bench. Um, this is what we call it in, in fly tying. Um, and they'll pull out you know, feathers, actual bird feathers, um, thread, other organic materials. And they'll take a hook, put it on a vise, and they'll start to mimic that species and that life stage, you know, life cycle stage of an insect to the best they can. So, for example, yesterday we were fishing with a, a little nymph, um, a little nymph, so the, you know, the juvenile stage of an insect that's, you know, entirely underwater and that we were trying to uh, mimic the closest we can with what species are, of insect are found in that stream. Now, I will admit this was a pretty generic pattern that it can be used anywhere, um, but just because it's, it's a very common thing, it's a very dark, you know, as you saw, J-shaped, uh, hook-shaped fly uh, that, that mimics a lot of the different macro, macro inverts that are found, you know, in that stream and other streams. Um, so that's just kind of a, it's a fun way to explore entomology uh, for, you know, maybe towards a slightly different end than an entomologist here at the museum would. Yeah. Well, it's, it's very interesting, you know, especially as most of my fishing experience comes from my grandpa when we would fish for uh, crappie and bass and things like that, which will strike at, you know, mm-hmm. a cocktail wieners. I mean, they <laughs> right. truly don't care. Yep. Um, so, but trout are very discerning and they're very visual, I understand. They are, or at least uh, we like to say, you know, think they are so that we can justify these esoteric activities. No, I'm kidding. But the, um, it, they are. So... A lot of people will say, "Oh man, you got to get the, uh, you know, the the eye color right on that fly," and it's just like, "No, I don't know about that." But you have to at least get the size, maybe the general color, um, but certainly the profile or the shape um, of of that whatever life cycle stage that you're trying to mimic, because a lot of nymphs, you know, the small the juvenile stage do kind of look alike. Uh, mm-hmm. But as you get through the life cycles into the pupa and then the adult phase, they do look quite different. Um, so imagine you're a trout for a second, um, you know, looking up, you're at the bottom of a pool, looking up at the surface of the water, you know, something lands on top and it's floating there. You can tell the difference between a leaf versus an insect. So that's, that's a very, you know, basic level. Now, something lands on top, you can tell the difference between, let's say, I don't know, a butterfly versus a mayfly. Trout can too. Mm-hmm. Something lands on top. You know, between one species of mayfly or the other, eh, we're getting into some, <laughs> you know, uh, are we, are we, I don't know, doing this for the, uh, the fun of fly tying? Or are we doing this for the, uh, uh, to actually mimic, you know, what the trout is thinking in that one moment? Mm-hmm. Uh, but all this to say is yes, you know, seasonally and regionally, um, you do have to get, you know, into the weeds in terms of knowing your, your stream entomology. Yeah. You know, one question I was going to ask you, uh, we have you know, a couple of organizations locally. We mm-hmm. have a branch of uh, Trout Unlimited. We right. have the Dan River Basin Association. And, you know, these are organizations that are very fiercely devoted to uh, stream conservation, right. river conservation, uh, but also are, you know, fishing enthusiast mm-hmm. groups. And, you know, clearly it is possible to do both. You know, what do you feel like, as a fisherman, you know, sort of the responsibility is, how do you become 
you know, a, a conscious and deliberate fisherman protecting the streams. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at, so just first, you know, you know, to your point, how do you know, how do you do both? I'll say that, I mean, very productively, mm-hmm. if you look at a lot of the funding for where habitat conservation comes from, um, whether that's wetlands for ducks or um, small mountain streams for native trout, a lot of them are these recreational groups, these, you know, um, not-for-profit groups that support conservation of habitat and ethical recreation, whether that's hunting or fishing, at the same time. Now, for, you know, fly fishing, we have a couple of big groups that do this. I'll say that a couple of the activities that I should say the um, the ethical ways of doing this um, to support the conservation of these species typically revolve around how you fish for them, how you handle them, and really what you do with them once they're caught. Mm. I mentioned earlier, you know, one of the best things that you can do, of course, is catch and release. We're in a you know a day and age where trout are readily available at the grocery store. <laughs> you know, in my opinion, so I, that's why I don't typically you know, keep any trout that I catch. It always goes back immediately and with Mm -hmm. as little handling as possible related to handling. When you catch a trout, one thing that we talked about as we were, you know, pulling out, for example, I think it was a a wild rainbow when we were talking about this, when we were pulling it out of the the pool, was I kept it in that silicone net. So the net, first of all, was silicone. It, It wasn't it wasn't a thread net like the old school landing yeah. nets that you're familiar with. And that's, that's for one. It's a much gentler on the fish. And it also doesn't wipe away that protective slime that that trout has on its body. That protective slime, as we were talking about yesterday, it doesn't come, it doesn't regenerate. Once it's lost, it's lost. It's born with it. And if it's wiped away, whether that's from a dry hand handling that fish or a net or a certain type of glove even handling that fish, it's gone for good. Chances are that's going to impact that fish, if not immediately, certainly down the road. And so that protective slime, you know, keeps certain harmful bacteria away. It keeps, you know, it has a lot of benefits. So handling. One is you want to use a landing net with ideally that type of netting. Two, you want to Keep it out of the water I mean, as short amount of time as possible, of course. That's a given. And two, to handling it. Handle it with a wet hand if you have to touch it, whether that's to you know, remove a hook or whatever. Um, if you have to touch it all. As you saw yesterday, we really didn't touch anything. Yeah. We kept them in the landing nets um, and put them back. So just those basic activities are going to go a long way in protecting those trout. Now on to you know, what you're using. One thing that we used yesterday was barbless hooks. Yeah. Now, that's a much more difficult way to fish, as we all experienced yesterday, oh, with yes. the amount that we hooked but got off the line. But having a barbless hook, you can imagine, you know, take a barbed hook and stick it through your lip right now. And then you try to pull it out. You're going to have a tough time pulling that out. And at no. the end of the day, once it gets out one way or another, you're going to have a larger hole in your lip because of it. Absolutely. Now... Imagine sticking a barbless hook next to it. Now you're pretty much going to be able to just sort of lift that out immediately without, you know, creating a larger hole in your lip Mm -hmm. because of it. So, I mean, minimizing that impact is is the way to go in terms of protecting those species at all costs. 
Um, so that's just a way of um, a few standard practices that a lot of anglers will do um, to be conscious of the longevity of those individual trout that they're handling in the in the streams and rivers, but also the generations of trout that those individual trouts are you know reproducing and creating. So you can't just think about you know a single trout. You have to think about those trout's eggs, you know, for years to come. You have to think about its opportunity to mate with other trout in that stream. So, you know, an individual trout is an important kind of unit of concern uh, mm-hmm. when you're, you're thinking about these things. Absolutely. And I, yeah, I'd add, I've um, got a friend who's in, you know, one of the aforementioned uh, conservation groups. I know they do uh, cleanups of the Smith River mm-hmm. pretty regularly, yeah. and it is absolutely remarkable the stuff they haul out of there. Um, I, I have never felt a burning desire to heave a tire into a river, but right. apparently I'm in a tiny minority. It's, it's uh, just remarkable. Yeah, I mean, you can, all you have to do is just think what goes into making a tire, <laughs> and imagine what leeches off of a tire once it's breaking down in a river. That's all. That's all that needs to be said for that. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I was wondering if um, you could briefly touch on the the two other species mm-hmm. we have here. Yeah, we alluded to them a bit, the uh, rainbow trout and brown trout. Uh, but yeah, I was wondering if you could talk to them because uh, talk about them because um, I didn't even realize until yesterday that the brown trout is a European species. It is. It's a, it is a German species that was brought here. I mean, I think the first ones might have been brought in the late nineteenth century. Someone's gonna you know probably correct you, <laughs> call in and correct you on that. Uh, but the you know it, it maybe the early twentieth century standard stocking became a thing. I believe in the mid twentieth century um, for this part of the country. Um, so they're bringing in German brown trout. Um, they're, you know, raising them in hatcheries, and then they are releasing them into our rivers. Now they will survive and thrive in, in our local rivers and streams. In places like the Smith River locally, they'll even reproduce um, year after year, and they'll, I mean, they'll get substantial. They're probably the largest species that we have in the Smith River down here, actually are holdover or reproducing brown trout. Um, but... Um, they are a stocked species, and so th- there you'll see some issues that flare up because of that. So one, you know, Smith River's a tailwater, and that's what we call, you know, of course, a, a, a river that is, you know, dammed mm-hmm. at one end. So it's, it's a tailwater, and that does a few things. One, it's, it's generally going to be colder year-round because the water from the source is coming from the bottom yeah. of the dam, and so that's the coldest water. And so that, that has impacts for most of the Smith River and keeping it cold year-round. That's why it's such a productive trout habitat for stocked species. Brown trout, you find them throughout the Smith River. They're stocked throughout the Smith River. Um, you find probably a little bit more of them and certainly larger ones at the lower Smith, um, which is, you know, we have two dams on the Smith, the one at Philpot Lake and then the one in Martinsville. Lower Smith is the one below Martinsville. You get large brown trout down there, and one of the things why you know you get more down there is because the waters are warmer, and so part of that is a management strategy for the state and how they stock, um, but also it's a you know what can survive in warmer water. Brown trout in general are more resilient to those temperature fluctuations. Water reaches seventy three degrees one day. Brown trout 
yeah, they're going to be stressed, but they're going to pro- I mean, in a lot of cases, they're going to survive if it's a quick swing. Um, so that's why um, you can why brown trout are thriving in this area and many rivers in this area is because they're very resilient. Now, rainbow trout. This is a North American species, but it is not native to Eastern North America. These are largely confined to west of the Rockies, but it's probably one of the most successful, I don't, maybe that's the wrong term, but you know, successful introductions or stockings throughout, not just Eastern and you know, most of North America, but throughout the world. Since the 19th and 20th century, people have stocked rainbow trout in places you would not believe. And they have survived to this day. I'll give two quick examples. Kenya has, um, during its colonial period, the British stocked rainbow trout in some of the streams in Kenya. Today we have holdover rainbow trout from the colonial period in some of the streams in Kenya. Now this one's going to blow your socks off, I think. Hawaii. No kidding. In some of the high mountain streams, I should say high mountain streams, Mm -hmm. so they're staying colder than most of Hawaii, you have rainbow trout that have been stocked in those high mountain streams and are surviving and reproducing. So, I mean, those are are some, like, just two unusual places you probably wouldn't think of. Now, here in Virginia, it's not Kenya or Hawaii. I mean, there's, it's, waters are generally cooler, um, and you're going to have, uh, a lot of productive trout streams and rivers, kind of Piedmont, Virginia, and west. Um, in the Smith River, I would say they are certainly the dominant species. You get a lot of them closer to the dam and then kind of tapering off as you get further and further down the stream. They like that cold water. They're generally good in terms of larger populations that, you know, can survive on scavenging a lot of different things that are floating down the river. So chances are, as we saw yesterday mm-hmm. in the small stream where we were with wild rainbows, when you go out and you're fishing for trout in this area and you have an opportunity to catch any one of those, you are most likely mm-hmm. to see or catch rainbow trout. I'm trying to remember what the... The, the breakdown was yesterday, it seems like maybe four rainbow trout, two chub, and one brook trout. Yes, like that. that sounds right. Yeah. Uh, if you don't count, you know, if you don't count the monsters that we, we hooked, but the, you know, the, the ones that got away, yeah. um, had nightmares about them last night. But oh, the, the um, I think you're right in that breakdown. And I will admit that that was unexpected. Mm-hmm. When we went out there, we were fully expecting to see more brook trout. But what we saw was the majority of rainbow trout. Now, that's, you know, a, a good thing, but it's also maybe a little bit concerning about, you know, what is taking over these streams. So the good thing. The good thing is that these streams are healthy enough to support wild trout. That's a success in itself. The concerning thing is these are known native brook trout streams. If you have a lot of wild rainbows in there, you got to think of them as competing for the same food sources as those native brook trout. So even though there's a little bit of a success story in there, there's a little bit of also a little bit of concern in that they might be out competing those brook trout and pushing them out of those habitats simply because all of those little insects that are flowing down the stream 
those rainbows might be more successful in getting that food source than those brook trout. You know, so so many of the natural history discussions I have with you know, curators at the museum, inevitably climate change yeah. uh, filters into the discussion. You know, do you think that um, as global climate change continues, the brook trout are going to be sort of pushed further into, uh, or I guess more accurately, only be found in the higher elevations in Virginia? Yeah, as you saw yesterday, we were pretty much at the top of those headwaters. Mm -hmm. I mean, we couldn't go much further uh, Mm -hmm. into the mountains before we would have run out of water, before we would have hit the springs that feed those. So as far as pushing them, pushing those populations into colder waters, I think we might be at the end of the line for a lot of these streams. Now, certain sh- we might easily lose certain streams, and I would say that we probably have lost many brook trout streams in recent years with winters that don't really get cold, summers that get extremely hot for long periods of time. You're right that in the years to come, we're probably going to see brook trout, large brook trout populations that are confined really to the the coldest waters, the highest streams in Virginia. So, you know, up in the Shenandoah National Park, those higher streams right up, you know, as you get close to Skyline Drive on that ridge, you get much further down. I'm willing to bet that those stream temperatures are starting to reach 70, 72 on a regular basis, if not, if not, you know, warmer. Um, so I'd say yes, a major concern for um, not just stream temperatures, but also torrential downpours that we are getting. Mm-hmm. So with every little you know inch up in the uh, the the heat, you know, as, with global warming, we're getting more evaporation of waters. Think what that does to streams. You're getting you know you're effectively reducing the size of a pool or habitat um, by a couple inches, that's already you know having detrimental impacts to these populations. But you're also evaporating more water that is eventually gonna come down as rain at some point. As we've seen in recent years, these are typically torrential downpours which flood these streams. Now, brook trout and other species of trout are fairly resistant, or sorry, resilient to floods, you know, moderate level floods, and in some cases it allows them to actually swim upstream into other pools to get to colder waters seasonally or on an annual basis. But with an absolute, you know, blowout, torrential downpour flood event in these streams, like we're seeing every couple of years with a 500-year flood event, (laughs) (laughs) that's going to completely wash out these areas. There's Some of these trout populations will not stand a chance to those forces. Um, that energy. So that's that's a major concern as well as it relates to global warming. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not just the water temperature, it's it's actually, you know, the secondary or tertiary effects as well. Now, if someone, uh, whether they're, you know, interested in fishing or not, if they're interested in these conservation efforts, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what would you recommend to folks? So, I mean, I'd certainly, the, you know, number one source for me, it always has been, is um, the Commonwealth of Virginia, Wildlife and Recreation, used to be the Department of Game and Inland Fisheries, now, you know, Wildlife Recreation, 
I mean, they are the, they've made the largest investment in protecting these streams. Um, they are the ones who are uh, going out and creating and monitoring and managing, you know, in some cases easements. Um, they're, create, they're going out and monitoring the recreational activities to make sure that people are doing these types of things in an ethical way that protects these species, not just exploits them. Uh, they have produced a lot of great resources online um, in, in terms of learning about the species, learning about the habitat, learning about the issues that they face on a you know seasonal or annual basis. That has been my go-to source. Other sources, you will find a dozen to you know two dozen new books that come out on trout alone every single year. Some of these are kind of from the scientific community. A lot of these are from the very passionate and knowledgeable recreational community. Um, the anglers who are out there who have you know mastered the very specific um, you know features, habitat, diet, conservation issues of these three species that we're talking about. That's always a great source. Just go on, you know, to your local bookstore or, you know, look look these up. Another great resource are these, you know, usually not-for-profit groups that are out there focused on habitat conservation, but also ethical recreation. So Trout Unlimited is a great one. Uh, you get um, a lot of great resources coming out of academia as well. This might not be something that you know every listener will immediately think of when they think of, oh, what should I go to? But a lot of academic groups are also now producing literature, documentaries, in some cases citizen scientist opportunities for anyone to get involved with stream conservation. Um, a great long-term Water quality study is, is um, run out of the University of Virginia. They do, um, for the past you know few decades, they have conducted water quality tests on every you know most known trout streams, native trout streams in Virginia. There are opportunities for everyone listening to this podcast to actually go out, in this case every ten years, to go out and sample these streams for that long term study, just to understand. Okay, in the past decade what has happened to this stream compared to the decades prior. That's so, that information is so important. Um, so lots of opportunities out there. A quick Google search will get you any one of those. The last thing that I'll say is if you want to learn more about everything that we're talking about, come and see the Wild Watersheds exhibit here at the Virginia yes. Museum of Natural History. Yeah, you can actually see uh, live trout if you come out. We do. We have a, um, we have a large tank of uh, Southern Appalachian Brook trout, our native species here in this part of Virginia, um, right at the entrance to the, to the Wild Watersheds exhibit. Well, Hayden, uh, thanks so much, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you back very soon. All right. Thank you, Ben. And thank you for listening. As always, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Carter Bank and Trust, and my good friend Doug Cheatwood for the use of his song, Digging Up Dinosaurs and Putting Them Together Again. We'll see you next time. <laughs>